The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu. Okay, welcome to Ask Alex episode 179 on the OneOuter.com podcast, sponsored by americascardroom.com. If you want 27% rate back from americascardroom.com, simply sign up for your account by clicking on one of the ads or banners on the OneOuter.com website. Follow us on Twitter at OneOuter.com and join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash OneOuter. This episode and all of the previous episodes are on oneouter.com website and via iTunes for free. If you want to send questions in for the show, then please email questions at oneouter.com or you can tweet them or post them in the Facebook group and we will get them answered on a future show. Alex, we are back to back today, so this one is going to be pretty question orientated. i got three questions set up ready to go. But what else can we talk about just now? We do like to have a little bit of an intro. Well, <laughs> Barry and actually were and I were talking about something, and we're we were going to try to work it in. But honestly, something I've been thinking about, Barry, is just uh, <laughs> I've been very tired lately, and when I get tired, I get a little depressed. But something's been helping me, and not not depressed as in very profound depression as in eh, I just don't really feel good about life right now like calm and cold depressed right and I've been keeping to this thing of like just move around like just keep going and enjoy it right like have fun with it like I'm working a little too much but the more I tell myself nobody else could handle this but me I'm gonna have fun with this I'm just gonna smile blood at my competition in the middle of the ring and just keep taking the punches and going with it I'm having a good time right and moving around really helps you a lot. And then the, the other thing that's really been helping me a, a lot, I actually wanted to talk to you about this before we got ranting about it, is it, I've had a new thing where if I read a book for, like, if I read 10% of a book, I've always done this, but I'm getting really cutthroat at it now. If I read 10% of a book and it does not speak to me, I do not read the rest of it. It does not matter if I paid money for it, does not matter uh, how much people recommend it to me. Uh, if, if it's not speaking to me at this time in my life, I'm not into it. And that's actually been increasing my enjoyment of life much more because you realize, I, I think I have the job most millennials want, work for myself, decide my own schedule, stuff like that, uh, have my own business, do something creative, fulfilling work. I read every book on earth about business, I don't think I use 99% of the crap I read, you know, but one of the, one of the books, uh, one of the books I've just been addicted to lately that Barry and I were talking about, which I think is one of the smartest concepts I've ever read is skin in the game. We were talking about that book, uh, just before we went on. It really does just answer everything, right, Barry? Like what, what are you actually doing about this, right? Yeah. What is going to uh, 
Well, and it's my new favorite thing because people in New York love to talk, right? And my whole question now, you know, if I really wanted to put them on the spot, I could say, what are you doing about the problem? And if the answer is raising awareness, it's like, go after yourself, right? Who isn't raising awareness? Every jackass on Facebook is raising awareness, right? You, you guys have a little bit too much awareness right now and not, not a whole lot of doing anything. But if you guys haven't read the book, I highly recommend it. Uh, it his whole thing is, if a guy's reputation, financial well-being our name is not on it, do not trust it. And if the person isn't putting in blood, sweat, and tears, do not trust it. And I, I love that book. What did you, have you finished the book yet, Barry? No, no, I'm just aware of the concept. I've got the book, but I'm actually going to read Anti-Fragile first. I've still got that to do. So I'm, I'm kind of reading them chronologically. But I've watched a lot of uh, YouTube talks, like more than an hour long and stuff, where he's talking about the concept. So I, I'm, I'm aware of the concept and some of the stories that are used in the, in the book as well. Well, the thing you were saying that I was amazed, I went to go, I just finished Fooled by Randomness, and I went to just leave my little review on Goodreads, right, just to remind myself I also like how Goodreads recommends books for you, and they really help me from buying new books that I just get rid of within 40 pages. But I went to go leave a review, and I was amazed by how low the reviews are on, uh, is it Nassim Nicholas Taleb or Nicholas Nassim Taleb? It's the other way around, right? Nassim Nicholas Taleb? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah Nassim anyway, Taleb. Taleb. Yeah. He's Taleb, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, I was amazed how many people are just always so arrogant. It's like, what does that have to do with the information that comes out of it? Like, I don't – well, I think you deal with these kind of people more in your business, right, Barry? Yeah, yeah, D different people, diff different walks of life. I think everyone encounters them. Yeah, which is – Barry was fired up about this 10 minutes ago, and I'm totally trying to cue him up, and he's just, like, giving me nothing, by the way, guys. <laughs> No, I'm letting you talk. I'm letting you talk. I'm letting no, you... No, I'm trying to let you talk. <laughs> I heard you fired up. Barry is the most interesting guy you will ever meet, guys. And then when he gets on here, he just becomes Ryan Seacrest, right? He's, <laughs> Ryan he's just not going to give you anything on anything, right? Because <laughs> if Alex goes down in flames, he will have another color commentator here by next week. <laughs> What was that guy's name? Albert? Albert? Albert was a good guy. I'm glad we had him. You know, Al, good old Al. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but, well, I mean, this is, a, this is something I think you and I have talked about a lot, or something I've been thinking about more. I read, okay, just, if you haven't read Skin in the Game, Taleb is one of the most arrogant people on God's green earth, right? He, uh, he, I don't know if he's arrogant. He's just very cynical. He's very skeptical. But it's amazing to me. People go like, I don't like this person. Therefore, I don't care for what they're saying. And I, I don't get that. Like, shouldn't you only care about yourself? I don't. I, maybe, I, maybe if I met Taleb for dinner, I would find him 
a very engaging person, or maybe I'll find him arrogant. I don't really know. It doesn't really matter to me because there's almost zero chance I'll ever meet him. And what I do know is I was laughing my ass off listening to Skin in the Game because it was almost it was almost a joke, like how dismissive he is of other people, and I thought it was so funny. But at the same way, you kind of think a cartoon character is funny. It's like, oh, this is this guy's shtick. He's, he's a skeptic. His whole thing is he's a skeptic. I'm sure, like, in person, he's a normal person, right? But this is his shtick. But it, it, it makes me think of poker. I remember everybody hated Phil Hellmuth so much back in, like, 2010 through 2012. And I got, you know, after Black Friday happened... I, you know, I'm left penniless uh, because, uh, what, you know, Chris Ferguson says, like, hey, you guys got your money back from Full Tilt. Who cares? But, you know, being three years without the greatest, the fruits of your labor is pretty tough, right? But, and unfortunately, I had a very significant portion of my role on Full Tilt, like, that particular week uh, when it happened. But, uh I, w- I decided, okay, I'm going to really learn how to play poker. And the first thing I did is I read Tim Ferriss' stuff because he was really good at learning things really rapidly. And he said, find an outlier that nobody likes in your industry or everybody says he shouldn't be good at this, right? And I went, okay, everybody hates Posagno. I don't know why because he's the nicest guy on earth. And... Everybody hates Phil Hellmuth, and that one I get a little bit more. He's a bit more prickly, right? But I, I, I studied Phil Hellmuth's stuff, and everybody was making fun of his short stack strategies and everything. And I started doing the math. I called one of my buddies up who uh, had math training, and I said, could you run this for me, uh, this short stack play? And he goes, oh, that's brilliant. And I said, you know, that's Phil Hellmuth's play, right? And then he went, What? And it's just like once you put the name on something, people just go, oh, and obviously it's not true. And it's like, what do you care who this person is or how this person would be over a dinner? You know, it, it, shouldn't you just want to take the information from them, Barry, and then move on with your life? Yeah, and I think that's an epidemic in today's world. If you look right. at people on Twitter and social media or even some people you speak to in person, they're so set in their ways and their views that anybody that disagrees with them or deviates from them, they completely shut down and do not listen to anything you have to say about any subject, you know? And to take it to extremes, someone who is completely wrong on one area can be a complete genius in other um, areas of life. And the whole thing is you as a human being individually is to take what's applicable to you or or it's not even what's applicable to you, it's to what you think is applicable to you and what mm-hmm. you can apply yourself and take little snippets and tidbits and do with it what you want. And I think that's Taleb's whole thing. I mean, I think he would quite equally say, you know, read, read, the, read these books and then, you know, process them your own way and apply mm-hmm. them to your own life and see what you think and, you know, what's your... Because that's the whole concept of something like skin in the game. It's like we can all sit and sit here and go, oh, I believe this. I want this to happen in the world. This is what's wrong with the world. <laughs> this is what's right with the world. Nobody's listening, really. 
apart from yourself. It's just mm-hmm. yourself that's you know you're not. Whereas it, we touched on this again lots of times. It's like talk is cheap. These old cliches are so true. Talk is cheap. Actions are what it is. And look at a man's actions or look at a, a lady's actions and you'll know what they're really about. And it goes back to that, what we've talked about again, following your effort in terms of business and people saying, I want to be a professional poker player. Well, what did you do this week? Ah, I played a little bit in the live casino. I registered for the Sunday Million and then I watched like six box sets, which was basically what <laughs> I did. You know, like that's not the actions that they don't align with what you're saying. And Taleb speaks about BS, bullshit, and he says that's he's very anti-BS and he's no time for bullshit. So I think that can come across as arrogance when people are literally just to the point of, look, you can convince yourself and delude yourself. You're only conning yourself. It's about actions. You know, you can sit and say, I. I want to do this for my life and travel the world. Or what have you done for that so far? Or what have you... Oh, nothing. I've not really... You know, it's just a, it's just a dream. It's just a word. It's just a... It's nothing. It's not attached to anything, a substance. Mm-hmm. You sound far more eloquent talking about that than I ever have. That was... that That's bear, that's the berry I wanted to come out right there. That was so good. Well, but, this is... this You know, it's com. This was before you. As you say... If you if you drop the wrong line and you get you know I get a letter from the government saying take Alex off the air I've got to find some other poker pro to come on and do ask whoever you know we're, <laughs> we're starting with alphabetical order you've held on for this long so <laughs> next is Barry Greenstein making yeah, his way up yeah, yeah well we had him on yeah yeah, yeah. and then you'll be doing seances with Chip Reese after that but yeah, yeah. anyway anyway. No, I, I, I really just to put a bow on this. I love that concept because it, it's one of those things where, it, well, I remember somebody doing a clean needle program in some city I was in, right? Because all the heroin addicts were transferring AIDS and stuff to each other through dirty needles, so. One person went in there and started handing out clean needles, and everybody from the sideline said, oh, you're condoning their behavior. <laughs> My, the best reaction to that is, until you're in there with that person trying to get those people into treatment clinics and dealing with that, I don't think you can say anything to this person. But whether you agree with it or not, it doesn't really matter because this person's actually trying to do something about the problem while you're just sitting there doing nothing. I, I, I wish there was more of that in this culture, which is, here's my opinion. Well, your opinion is worthless because it's not backed by actions. It's not doing anything, right? It's, <laughs> it, it's mere talk. But yeah, anyway, again, and to be... Yeah, anyway, let's do some questions. Let's have fun. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, let's pick the first question. I think it's from G, our regular of recent weeks, emailer inner. Um, let me see. Yeah, it is from G. No, it's not. He's second. The first one is okay. from... The first one is from Rennie, or Rene. I'm not sure. I, I don't know. The guy's Portuguese. How would you say that? Rennie? Uh, Rene, I would say it, Rene. Yeah, yeah, yeah Rene. Uh, um, it's uh, okay. Anyway, 
screw the pronunciation. Uh, it's, great, it's great to hear from this guy. He sent me this uh, one on Twitter. And it's, hi Barry and Alex. I was wondering, in terms of live MKTs, what are two to three adjustments you make when playing from 40 minute blind levels with anties compared to 20 minute levels without anties? Love the show. Cheers. Ah, like he's done cheers. Uh, I don't know if he's done... <laughs> yeah, maybe he just does that as well. He's European, so he maybe just says it. You know, like uh, Salute sort of thing, yeah. I, I think him and I have talked... Well, we have talked... I don't think we have talked before on Twitter. I think he's in the States now, but... Uh, you know, to be honest with you, I read this question on Twitter, and I don't really know what to tell you, because if they said... Uh, well, I, well, Barry, if they said a football game, I'll use your word, instead of being regulation length was 20 minutes long, what adjustments should they make as two football teams? I would say just play the same. It's the exact same, right? It's yeah. the same thing with baseball. Like, okay, guys, we're going to play a three-inning game today. Well, it's still the same game. Uh but yeah, I guess you're, you're both sorry. You're both playing twenty minutes still. So at a tournament, you, everyone at the table is playing with the same rules. So that's why it just is the same. You know, whereas if it was you have got you're posting an ante and the rest of the table's not, how would you adjust or something? You know, some hypothetical like that. But because the whole table is playing twenty minutes with no antes. Or forty minutes with it's it's the same for everyone. So the parameters are the same. So you're all under those constraints. So you, yeah, I would just say, I guess the only thing in terms of poker is you definitely get less hands in the twenty minutes without mm -hmm. the forty minutes per level. So I don't know how you would maybe you know you need to play a little bit. Uh, more aggressive. It's almost like a turbo. You know, if you distill that down, then what's the difference between 20 minutes without anties and two minutes without anties, then you got to just get it in pretty, you know. You know. But then again, you don't, because I used to play the turbos, and tight is right, it's 100% right for them until the, you know, the anties and stuff start kicking in, and then you then you open up. So, yeah, Alex, let, let's hear it. Well, I don't have a ton more to add. The, bi the big thing I notice is, when I show up at the poker table, I will just be a contrarian to whatever is out there. So when I show up for a tournament with 40-minute blinds, let's say that, people do this whole, well, it's going to be a couple hours before anything happens. So what they do is they open, they limp, they, they goof off, and nobody really expects to bust that first, tur that first round of the tournament. So... I three bet all the time. I ISO everybody. I try to get people heads up. Now, if I don't get a hand, I fold. I, in uh, WSOPC Baltimore, I didn't get a hand for four levels, so I didn't get to do anything. Uh, but the fifth level, when I did start three betting, I think five times people just folded to my three bet, didn't even peel, which was I had not seen in a very long time. But that, like you said, tight is right. But at the beginning, if everybody's just playing very slow, very passive, flatting you out of position, I'm just going to keep taking that edge again and again. I'm just going to keep setting up big pots with me in position with okay hands because I think I'm going to handle that much better than you playing mediocre hands out of position when you're not the leader in the pot. Uh, now, that being said, when I go play a six-max tournament, a six-max tournament, 
facilitates a lot of what you're going to see in uh, faster tournaments, right? When people see 20 minutes on the clock, they play faster. When people see a six-max tournament and they see the blind come through them a little bit more, they play faster. The big thing to remind yourself is it's the same damn game. Uh, the six-max tournament I final tabled in Montreal uh, back when I was out there a few of those stops ago. I, everybody was just playing bananas the first six levels, and I don't think I touched a chip. Blind, blind levels were 30 minutes or something like that. I didn't, and eventually I had one guy just, uh, I had one guy who really was taking this too far, who just kept betting and betting and betting, and I waited till I had a hand and I trapped him. So again, it was the exact opposite strategy, whereas if I were playing nine max and everybody said, oh, the blind doesn't come to me that often, I've got 40 minutes, 60 minutes, a couple hours here, I'm just going to limp in. If I get a 5-7 suited, maybe I'll put a little raise out there. Uh, I'm going to be taking it cool. I'm isoing that guy, and I'm playing that guy, and I'm going for value versus that guy a lot. Because that guy, I can't tell you how many times, uh, I've asked this question to everybody, how many times have you been at the end of level two, you look down at your stack, and you've lost 15% of your chips, and you have no idea how that happened? Yeah. It, that money has to be going to somebody. I want to be that guy. But at the beginning of a tournament, if it's 20-minute 20, 20 levels, people act like it's a cage match, right? So you have, to, you have to understand it's still the same game, but people are a little bit more likely to do goofball raises. You have to get really good. I think when Negreanu does better than anyone now, I'm watching, I'm studying poker much more than I used to. Uh, just outliers. My new thing is outliers. Who is an outlier uh, in regards to this game? And do I think they're do? Do I think that they are doing anything special? The vast majority of these guys, no, I don't think so. I, I think uh, I, I think they're running really well. But Negreanu is not one of those guys. I think what Negreanu is really good at is identifying big raises that are BS. And I think the way that you do that is well, if somebody's going. If somebody does a really slow raise, I usually it, that tends to be value a little bit more often. Uh, because if you think about it, if you're bluffing, it's kind of like jumping off of a cliff in the water. Like if you're 40 feet up and you're going to jump into a river, you're probably not going to sit there for a long time. You're going to psych yourself up and jump. And a lot of people do the same thing with bluffs. And a lot of times in these live tournaments, the line won't even make sense. The board will come queen, nine, three, rainbow. You'll bet small, and the guy will just 2.2x raise. Well, he's either got threes, nines, queens, or queen nine, and he probably would have three-bet queens pre-flop, and there's a good chance he would have flatted nines or threes on this driver board. So you three-bet the guy back. But you need to be looking for that random raise. Usually the sizing is a good indication as well. If you bet, let's say you bet 3.5K, and the guy raises to... 7.6, just ask yourself, if I were trying to get this guy to fold out, if I were trying to get me to fold out, would 7.6 work? Uh, I probably wouldn't even consider 7.6. Most people wouldn't consider 7.6. It looks like the guy wants to get called. Now, if that same guy goes 11,000 right away and stares you in the eye, well, okay, you might need to gamble now with top pair. But I think those would be the big differences. I hope this helps you, Renee. And I think I don't want to. Oh, 
I don't want to preempt uh, another question we got at the that I've noticed the last one we're going to ask today. But just on that as well, I suppose it just comes down to every table's different. I think everybody needs to remind themselves that, myself included. You know, when you when you're away from the table and you're thinking it, and sometimes when you're uh, thinking, oh, poke, you know, strategy over all this and that, or going over previous hands, you forget those hands were on that day against that set of players with every hand that went before it and the tabletop before it, etc. It's a completely different situation. So probably just game flow and like reacting rather than uh, going in with some set strategy of, okay, it's 20 minute blinds, this is how I'm going to play, I'm going to open up this. You know, if you go to the table and nobody's raising and it's a really tight table, we're like, uh, without being stereotypical, no, with being stereotypical and factual actually, so a load of guys in their 50s plus that are playing like rocks, then go and raise and raise and take as much pots and see about 100% because a lot of them will fold and give you that, oh, it's the first level or second level, I'm not going bust, let them win those small pots, etc. Um, whereas if you sit down at the table and there's a lot of guys who are playing in three bet and stuff, and like Alex said, you're not getting the hands, then maybe you want to just sit back that way. So just poker is, I think we all need to remind ourselves, it's, Every game in hand is different with every different person at the table and that you sit down at. So I just throw that in. No, I agree. Uh, the other thing I find that will really help you is you have to get used to people not liking you at the poker table. If people like you at the poker table, that means you fit into the poker table, which means you're not really taking advantage of them. If everybody's loose at a poker table, and even if you're playing extremely nitty, you're probably going to make some money, but you'll be the nit that everybody mocks. If you're at a table where everybody's playing really tight and you're raising constantly, every one of those guys is going to mock you and talk about how you're going to bust yourself in the first level. And I'm always that guy. On every single tournament I play, I'm that guy. And usually when I bust the tournament, there's people snickering, there's people saying underhanded comments, there's people going after me. There's a lot of times people are not gentlemanly about it. And I gotta accept that because I'm actually out there to make money. It's a very human need to want to belong because we are tribal creatures and most of our history was spent I think it was in the Sahara. So in those days when your brain when your brain was being developed and it was evolving it taught you if you do not belong, you will die, because quite literally, if you did not belong to the tribe at that time, you died. So you have to go against your very human nature when you are playing poker. So I almost look at it as a good sign if everybody's making fun of me. And I think that will take you much further than trying to catalog every single technical adjustment that could possibly take place, because I think what... Barry is driving at, which is a more universal idea, is you take what the table is going to give you if you're going to play contradictory to how they're playing. I think that's a very good method that Barry is discussing. All right, let's go to the next question. Okay, I think we're going to go straight to the one that I've got last on the question because it kind of follows on, and I think it would be a good segue into to doing this and talking about it, Alex. So this one is from Mike. Hi guys, I have a question and I know it's been talked about before, but with Alex's new Moneyball approach to look at poker, 
What are his thoughts on overall strategy at various stages in tournaments? Tight in the early stages and then loosen up, or are there any new insights you can share? Thanks. I actually have an entire chapter about that in my upcoming book, so look for that on DMB Publishing. Here's the thing about the Moneyball poker approach, which I want to get clear to everybody. Uh, I can describe to you what 99% of professional poker players are doing. They open when people are not likely to three-bet them. They'll save that as position. That's not true. Generally, a lot of them will cheat on position. They won't tell you that if they're teaching poker. And the reason they're doing that is they're cheating in situations where they think people won't three-bet them. People who don't understand that will just open 3-7 suited from the hijack because they saw Gus Hansen do it once. And people that are a bit more adherent to the old style will never open a suited gapper ever unless it's on the button. When really, you're going to make money pretty traditionally as long as you don't open just absolute offsuit garbage as long as your hand has some post-flop functionality and you're not very likely to be three-bet. That's usually found in position, but it can be found in earlier position and well, as well in specialized games. Uh, the three-bet, I'm pretty sure when we look back at poker in this age, everybody's going to be dumbfounded at how unused the three-bet was, how it was not considered gentlemanly. If you three-bet somebody who opens too much and they are not four-betting you a significant percentage of the time, which is going to happen almost always, you make a profit. In most of the equity calcs I do, you will make a profit. If you C-bet into someone and they're folding most of their high cards, you will make a profit. Now, that means you have to pick a bet that will get high cards to fold, and you are going to have to pick boards that will mean their flopping range is generally filled with high cards. However, those are pretty easy to find. And that's about it. That's what most poker players are doing. What changes the Moneyball approach is, or doesn't change the Moneyball approach, what separates the generic reg from the outstanding reg is how they deal with the 18-point shot. How they deal, all these plays are good for one big blind, two big blinds, three big blinds max, right? just like a free throw in the NBA, a normal shot, a three-pointer. And then magically, these 18-point shots open up. That is river value betting. Pretty much every good reg, river value bets effectively. Every mediocre reg just jams all their chips because that's what they're supposed to do to be balanced. They fold the guy who had a cap range at second pair, and then they never realize where, why their profit margin isn't that great. And then the outstanding regs will pick off people's bluffs. They will do an incredible... I believe what Negreanu is fantastic at is identifying when people are bluffing. I think he's uncanny at that. And I think his table talk is what unlocks most of that. And I understand <coughs> why he's so vehemently opposed to the new rules. And quite frankly, I am as well. Because he should be allowed to talk to you because you also have the right of just sitting there and looking down at the table. And I, I, I think it's very unfair to take that tool that he's spent decades cultivating away from him. And by the way, isn't that 
Isn't that poker, Barry, just to be able to talk to your man and see if you can get something out of him? Isn't that what we used to see on Rounders? Isn't that why we play this damn game? I don't, I don't get it. Anyway, sorry. But uh, you're going – that is what – that is what – separates the outstanding regulars. Now, <clears throat> what also separates them is they don't get very far from this formula. If I see anything that dooms a guy to mediocrity and is most likely to get him out of the game, it will be these two things. One, no, no hunger. No love for it. We're, we're talking about... Uh, Barry and I were talking about at the beginning of this show, follow your work ethic. If you go into the card room and you find the guys that have been playing cards for 20 years, they don't know, they, and have been making money off of it, they don't have anything else that they do. When they're up, they're thinking about situations. When they're in a hotel room, they're throwing the cards down on the floor trying to figure out the next hand. When they're playing... They're paying attention to every hand. When they're eating, they're talking poker with their friends. They live and breathe it. I used to, you were saying the Taleb thing is don't tell me what you think. Tell me what's in your portfolio. Mm. When I was younger, you could tell I was full of it because I would say I want to be a writer, yet my work ethic was in poker. That was all I did. I was hungry for it. I wanted it. I was... Barry is saying, like, he would show up at three and he wouldn't play the Colossus. Like, I'd be in that tournament twice. I would be in there. I would take it as a badge of honor, busting spectacularly in a spectacular fashion and having everybody at the table mock me. I'm hungry for it. You cannot check the river to me and me having a top pair without me sweating it to figure out how to take money out of you. If I see a guy doesn't have that, he can't play. And the other thing that they do is they try to do too much in situations where there's very little to do. They see that on a very low board versus an older player. The older player raises them very quickly. Nine times out of ten, two, five or below, the guy flop is set, right? But you'll see the guy just, he can't accept it. It's just, he'll try to three bet and do too much. And that... That is what makes them mediocre. And when you talk about tournaments, there's a lot of people that discuss specialization in each part of the tournaments. It's one of those things, uh, you know, I'm trying to be table captain. I'm, uh, I'm going to play every hand on the bubble. Uh, I want to come into the final table as the chip leader. Your goal in a poker tournament is to get as far as possible, okay? It's not to win the tournament. If in this tournament, there's the furthest you could get is 13th and you finish 28th, you have failed. If you gamble very stupidly with 28 people left and ensure that you bust with 28 people 80% of the time, but 20% of the time, you finish fourth or higher because you gambled up there. That's not, you're going to not last, okay? Everybody's problem is they're trying to do too much. 
Now, these are my general recommendations for playing a poker tournament. At the beginning, everybody sits down. They think they have all day. They limp a lot. They raise BS hands. Three bet them. Isolate them. Be the leader. Position bigger pots, superior hands, heads up, and just take them to town. Value bet. Value bet viciously. Nobody will fold to you ever, and do not bluff as much as you'd like to. Okay? When you get to the dogfighting stage, which is once the Annie's kicking, everybody just decides, all right, it's time to play poker now. You're probably going to still see a lot of weak opens, right? Maybe they were limps in the first level. Now they're opens. Well, you're going to have to three-bet more. You're going to have to three-bet. And by the way, the whole time you play this tournament, your two goals in this tournament are... Your two goals in this tournament are to cash and to win. People who do not cash many tournaments but occasionally win them do not last in tournament poker. And people who cash all the time and never win do not last in tournament poker. Those are the two most significant payout jumps in tournament poker. So your whole thing is to cash and then it is to win. And if you think about that with the hypothetical we discussed in the last episode, if you were it at a card room where – you had to play 200 NL, and when you doubled up, you could go to 400 NL. And when you were at 400 NL, you doubled up and you went to 3-6. You'd have to play very aggressively. But now imagine a card room where you've been sitting there playing 1-2 for a little while, piddling away, playing tight, and they said, you got to go to 2-4 now. Well, how likely would you last at that 2-4 with the 200 NL stack? Now imagine a couple of hours later, they put you at 3-6. How, how likely are you to last with your $170? Probably not that long. So you are going to have to adapt an aggressive strategy. And most of my training materials are on what I believe to be the most intelligent aggressive strategy, which is to take advantage of prolific openers, to open when it's very unlikely people are going to free bet you. Now, you follow that. That's most of your game and scoring really big value bets. And if somebody does do a big raise against you, Trying to Negrano it up and identify whether the guy is bluffing, talking to him. I honestly think you should take the penalty, if there is a penalty. Talking to the guy, seeing if you can get a reaction out of him. And if you see a very honest reaction most of the time, it's a hand. If the guy just clams up, he a lot, of, he, a lot more of the time he doesn't have it. Sometimes that's a guy feigning nervousness with a hand, but it's more likely to be... It's more likely to be nothing than it is if somebody does a very natural smile. I always try to affect a very natural smile when I'm bluffing. Uh, try to think of something funny that gets me going. Uh, now, that being said, you're not really doing much more beyond that until you get to the bubble. Now, on the bubble, if you get a cash in there, that's almost always pretty significant. So my general thing is like 50 big blinds are higher. I'm just looking... So every time there's a big opener, I'm three-betting. Uh, anytime people behind me have clammed up a bit, I'm opening. But sometimes the people to my left are three-betting constantly, and nobody to my right is opening that much. It's a crappy table draw, so I have to sit there and do nothing. I don't tell myself, so-and-so took over a tournament at their table. Why can't I do it? Or it's so unfair this person got a bit better table draw than me. Well, screw it. I'll try to make it happen. No, my goal is not to beat this person at another table. My goal is to get as far into the tournament as possible, to take as much money from this prize pool as possible. Now, if you're around 30 big blinds, 35 big blinds, 
so often on the bubble, there will be a number of people with five big blinds, seven big blinds, three big blinds even, who are just trying to sneak into the money. This means, since cashing is always significant, you can drop the three-bet blocks. You can drop a lot of the open blocks. And if you are going to do anything, ICM-wise, it's a lot better just to jam at this juncture. Uh, if somebody opens the 2.5x, you're in the cutoff with ace-queen suited, and you want to play, just shove. Nobody's calling you effectively. No, they should be calling you there with eights, sevens, sometimes sixes. Uh, they should be calling you with nines. A lot of times you'll see them just out and fold, especially if they have 35, 40x themselves and care about the men cash. Uh, what you don't want to do is just split the difference there, call, have the board come a 6 3 and go bust to a 6 which I hear at every tournament I've ever been at since the dawn of time. Once you secure that min cash, everybody starts fighting again. Everybody just goes, I'm free rolling, it's time to get my money in with anything. You've got to be very careful on your opens because usually a short stack is going to be jamming to you. And you've got to be very careful on your three bets uh, because usually there's a short stack behind you that's going to come over the top. Once, so you've got to sit there, and when you open, you've got to be prepared to call all in. You survive a couple of that. Those, this comes to the time of the tournament I love more than anything, the dog fight. And that is just another dog fight. But this is the big one. This is the high-stakes one. And you go for the win. If you bust 10, who cares? Just go for it because it is the win. If you look at every... If you look at the payout jumps for every tournament, the two biggest payout jumps are from no money to a min cash and from second to first. So you generally, if it is plus chip EV, it is a good idea to execute at this stage. And people are usually just scared. And that's, I get high off of that. I love it. I, I love watching people cower. And it, it, it sounds really, it, it sounds messed up, but... Uh, jamming the river without the hand and the guy, the guy's sweating bullets because it's 30 something left and he doesn't want to call and tell his back or he did a stupid call and gave away his tournament. Man, I feel alive <laughs> when I'm jamming there. That's, I love those two minutes, three minutes more than anything. And I think you have to cultivate that love for the intensity, for the pressure. Uh, you really have to cultivate the love before you get there of the training. Uh, to be in those situations, to go, oh, I remember this one. If he folds this, this, and this, I, I have an effective triple barrel here. This is the time I start doing my triple barrel bluffs. And I almost don't mind if I get called with the big stack because then every one of my value bets is going to be called up until the final table because with 50 people left in the tournament, all people do is talk about what's going on at every other table as opposed to focusing on their own. I, and at the final table... The big ICM things you want to remember is if you and another guy have a big stack, if you get into a big pot, you just spew money to every short stack at the table so you can jam on that person, but you don't want to be calling off versus that person. If that guy knows that, just go after him in every hand. If he knows that and doesn't care, a.k.a. Chad Batista, rest in peace, uh, don't go after him. Uh, if he's affecting the nuclear strategy, don't go after him. But... That be in, if you're in the middle of the pack, you don't want to be three-betting the chip leader just if there's a few guys to go. It's it, three-bet bluffing as much. You probably, ICM-wise, it's a little bit better to jam just because nobody calls jams wide enough. 
a guy opens on the button with most of his hands and you jam 30x, he's supposed to be calling with King-10 suit, and a lot of guys won't even call with Ace-Jack offsuit there. You have such a nice profit. I hope this has given you enough ideas, guys. Uh, yeah, buy the book when it comes out. We discuss this in greater detail. Okay, and that is all we have time for this episode. This was a back-to-back day, so I think we've done well. We've answered five questions and touched on a lot of other Nicholas Taleb worship as well. Um, <laughs> I think we're joining his cult. You're lucky you stay in New York. I mean, he does book signings and talks and stuff there. You need to go along and uh, see, if you, see if we can get him on the show. I'm going to keep an eye out for the <laughs> I'm going to see if he ever pops up in the UK and um, approach him and just like throw myself at him, <laughs> just kiss his feet. Um, yeah. oh, okay, so if you want to keep questions coming in for Alex on a future show, please email questions at com and we will get them read out. Alex, how can people get in touch with you for your materials, news of your upcoming book and everything else? If you want to sign up for my newsletter and get free poker training content practically every day, go to PokerHeadRush.com. Uh, it's just kind of my fun blog site. Go to the top right and sign up in that box. And be sure in your email, in your email account to put add Alex at PokerHeadRush.com into your contacts. That way you will get my emails right. So it won't go into spam and you'll be able to see them. Uh, be sure to follow me on Twitter at the Assassinato, and follow me on YouTube at Assassinato Coaching. More stuff coming out there soon. And write me if you need anything at alexandpokerheadrush.com. And do definitely join the newsletter. As I've said before, I follow his new newsletter. Actually, I get it into different mailboxes because I think I've been added through. Uh, you know, I get it a couple of times. Um, and I've got a couple to read. I think the last one was Whiny Millennials, I think, or something in the title. I got oh, yeah, those are the same as Whiny Millennials. It's a mental trick I use on myself whenever I'm tilting. Just I think of somebody very deplorable who I don't want to be like, and then I remind myself that I'm being that exact person if I affect this tilting culture. And then stops you from tilting. Shame is a very powerful driver. Shame on you. Yeah, um, definitely. Um, all right, Alex, thanks very much for doing this today, a comedy in uh, my Vegas trip and recording back-to-back, so we've still got a show coming out. And uh, there will be no show next week, which is the 31st of May, because you've had four in May already, but it will be back uh, the first Thursday of June, which I think is the 7th it will be. Um, okay, Alex, thanks for joining us. Until then, cheers. Cheers. The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1 million on the table every week. Yes, $1 million guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1 million guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu.